of Exodus, chapter 4 of Exodus, and the title of this is The Deliverer is Sent. It's time for Moses to go back to Egypt. Now Moses has resisted God five times, and he had come to, I think, a final conclusion that he's not going to beat God There is no way. He doesn't have a chance. God keeps after him. God has been very patient. And the last time, God got a little angry and uh, the point has been made and God had chosen him for this particular purpose to deliver Israel out of Egypt and then into their freedom. And that was just the way it's going to be. God's going to use Moses. Moses is starting to understand a little bit. He's starting to get it. He's, He's getting this together now. He just needs to be available. And that's what God is stressing to him because he in himself does not have the strength, does not have the power to be able to do what God is telling him to do. But he just says, just let me fill you, Moses, and, and I'll do the work. Uh, he's going to be the instrument in God's hands. And that's the way that we are to be, just an instrument in God's hands. We really don't have any special abilities or talents in our own that's going to impress God, but what He has makes um, all the difference. So there is no need for Moses to make any more excuses. After all those times, those excuse days are done. He's going to have to do what he's supposed to do. Now, we have come to this last section here. It's the final section Uh, dealing with uh, Moses being prepared before he goes to Egypt. And then it will go into the part where he does go to Egypt along with Aaron and then they meet with the elders in Egypt. So that's our section. We'll finish out chapter 4 here today, uh, Lord willing. I think this is quite a task that Moses has been given. And if you were told to lead two million people out of a place and then lead them into a desert... And to do that, uh, I think you would be quite shocked. And I don't think you'd really want to try to take that on, would you? Well, that's the way Moses has felt here. But God is the one who empowers. So we, get, we continue to stress that. That's where we get all of our power. It's all to be done in His strength. And so this is a lesson. It's a lesson for all of us to keep in mind at all times. Um, sometimes circumstances may come up against us. Certain things that we have to deal with and we don't think we can do it. We don't want to do it. A lot of times that's the case. We just don't want to do it. But if we recognize that, hey, He wants to work through us and we are to be obedient to His commands. Now that's said simply, but it can be difficult if we're not really wanting to go with the Lord fully, totally. It's an all-out sellout. We're going all the way with God or nothing, right? That's the way it is. So, verse 18, in Exodus 4.18 it says, So Moses went and returned to Jethro his father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now, God has just told Moses what is to be done, how it's to be done. He says, by the way, take the rod in your hand. And the rod is is always going to be dealing with the the very presence of God is there. And there's going to be some amazing miracles that's going to come out of this. And God's going to use Moses to to do this along with that rod that will remind him. 
these signs. Now before he goes, he's going to tell his father-in-law, Jethro, and no, we're not talking about that show, The Clampets. Remember that. But uh, some of you are going, what? <laughs> and others are saying, oh yeah. Well, this guy's name was actually Jethro. And uh, he was very kind to Moses because when Moses got there, Moses didn't know anybody. And what he was going to do, he didn't know. But God used Jethro in this whole plan. And so he arrives in Midian back 40 years ago, a total stranger from Egypt. And now, as it's time to go, he is going to make sure to ask permission from his father-in-law. Now, I think this is very interesting. I don't know how old Jethro is, but he is a father-in-law. Moses is 80 by now, and he's asking permission. And I think that's something to be said that Moses would even ask permission. He, he just doesn't come up to him saying, hey, uh, I'm taking my family and your daughter and we're getting out of here and we're not coming back. It doesn't say anything like that. He asks permission. And I think there's a lot to be said in that just for us. What can we get out of that little verse? I think that the idea of having respect for your elders for your mother and father. Uh, by the way, Happy Father's Day, right? Um, how about in-laws? Having respect for father-in-law, having respect for mother-in-law, uh, even though we may not see eye to eye, what, what is the point here? I think the respect has to be shown as a Christian. That's a mark of a Christian that you uh, respect those elders. And so we have it here. Um, he had been shown great hospitality by Jethro and taking him in and giving him his job. And by the way, Jethro is the one who gave him his, his daughter. So he has a lot to be thankful for. And so that's why he would do that. Now, it seems kind of strange to me. Um, I don't know how long this conversation went. And all I know is what's recorded here. It says, please let me go. Return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they're still alive. And that might have been all that Moses said. I tend to think he didn't give the, the details here. I think he left a few things out when he makes this great request. Don't you think? He didn't tell him, uh, at least recorded here, he didn't tell him about the burning bush, a voice of God coming out of that burning bush. Uh, maybe it's a little bit too much uh, for Jethro to accept right now. He just says, hey, uh, listen, it'll be okay. I'd like to ask permission if I can take your daughter, your grandsons uh, with me and uh, need to go to Egypt and see if there are uh, anybody, uh, see if there's any people left that, that I know of, relatives and such. And uh, that's really about what Moses says here. He didn't bring out the details of why he really wanted to go. I, I think he does say something here. God had told him, though, to go to Egypt to deliver the Israelites out of there. And so that's what um, uh, is, I think, left out by Moses. I think that's interesting. He doesn't have to tell the whole thing. He just wants to be polite and he wants to be respectful. And he tells him what he thinks he needs to give him. Uh, maybe it would have caused more problems than what it was worth. Uh, to say all these things of what has happened to him and about the rod and the signs that God is giving him and everything. Uh, anyway, um, quite a man this Jethro is. And we'll meet him again later. 
But it says right here, And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now that's a blessing that's given to him. doesn't cause any problems. He doesn't say, Hey, how about my daughter? How about my grandsons? You know, you're going to leave them here? What's going to happen? By the way, they don't stay uh, with Moses that whole time. They do wind up coming back for not for sure certain reasons would be. But uh, anyway, I think it's noteworthy here that Moses was taking his first step of faith as God has told him to do. I think he's in the right direction, don't you? may not have said everything, and maybe he didn't really have to. But we go on to verse 19. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go indeed, I will kill your son your firstborn. Now Moses is going to get promises from God. Moses is obedient. God comes back, tells him a little more detail of what's happening here. As he's ready to go, God just encourages him. Says, number one, there are no reasons to be afraid. He's going to go back there And you remember the reason he left in the first place is that they were chasing him down. They were wanting to get him because he had committed murder. And God says, don't worry. All the men, all the ones that came after you, they're dead. They're gone. The timing is perfect. I think that would probably add a little confidence to Moses. They're not after me. There's nobody to fear anymore. Your enemies, they're taken care of. How can we apply that today? Well, we still battle. We have uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We go against the enemy constantly. But at the same time, we have the armor of God, which is really the person of Christ that we put on, and there's no battle that we cannot win. We will be victorious in the end. We know that. God tells us not to fear. He says fear Him. That's the only fear we have to have, isn't it? And so Moses here is is told that. Um, he remember he was Egypt's most wanted so you could see there would be a good reason to fear I think we would have too but God tells him okay so really the, the first installment has already started here of the exodus as uh, Moses goes along here they've already been taken out God says so God has already started that action there all the ones uh, who enslaved the Israelites they're dead they can't hurt you now Moses they're still in slavery, but those original ones, they're not around. Now, his family went with him. And I think it's interesting to note right at the end of verse 20, the rod of God in his hand. Moses saw what God did with that shepherd's staff, that rod. And 
every time she'd look at that rod, just when you think, boy, this is, this is an impossible situation, because there's going to be some really impossible situations coming up as, pretty well as soon as he gets there and asks this question to Pharaoh. All he has to do is, is look at that rod and, and it reminds him that, hey, God has empowered you here. Um, if we look back to verse 17, and you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. Don't forget the rod, Moses. You're going to need that. It's going to be used in a mighty way. Not that it in itself is some magical tool. He didn't have to have that. But God uses means. He uses natural things sometimes, even in, when He's doing His miracles. It was, a, I think, a very tangible reminder. Something very physical there that He could get His hands on in God's presence. Now, there's another uh, promise here by God. And he is assured that God is going to do the signs. He's going to be empowered to do that. God knows whenever people take arms against us or situations, circumstances, take arm against us, God knows that we can be very weak. He always wants us to know, pay attention to Him. Don't put your eyes on that. Put your eyes on me. God's going to take those supernatural things and he's going to convince all he's going to convince the elders first and then uh, the the people of Israel and he's going to convince Pharaoh and the the people of Egypt and uh, so that's the kind of true God that we have here so Moses is given some promises there's another promise that God gives and this is seems like an odd statement but this gives us some insight on the character of God God would harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would be judged. This goes beyond us because we know there's tension here involved. We know that many times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. But remember the very initial outset is that and you you can't erase away God's word and twist it. It says here I will harden his heart. Pharaoh will harden his heart. They both will go together. It's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and how that works in the end is unfathomable. But that's what God's going to do. And just remember, it starts here. I will harden his heart. When we get into the plagues, we'll keep going back to this Exodus 4 and realize that God's plan is starting out here. It's not that He's being foiled. And it's, I couldn't change Pharaoh's heart. I, you know, I just don't have... You know, I can't go in there and change... But He sure did Moses, didn't He? Why did He not change Pharaoh's heart if He can change M- Moses' heart? So Moses believed. Well, did He? Uh, we already seen five times. I think that's pretty interesting there. And I think it's also notable that in Romans 9, where we get into some over-our-head thoughts of the great sovereignty of God, things that are too much to understand, but yet there's given a lot of insight there. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. On others, I will harden who I want to harden, Is that hard? Is that difficult? Yeah, it is. Because our minds can't totally wrap around it. But we have to believe it. We can't take one and pitch away the other. 
So if we go back to chapter 3, verse 19, we read this. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. He's not, he's, no way that he's going to let you go. There were times that I think he kind of wanted to because he was tired of everything that was going on. Until finally after the tenth plague. And then even then, it wasn't enough to convince Pharaoh because he went chasing after them all the way to the Red Sea. So there it says, King of Egypt will not let you go. So that's his responsibility. That's what he's going to do. That's his actions. God, in one sense, we know never makes anyone sin. But at the same time, indirectly, he's behind this scene to keep him hardened because every individual is hardened anyway. He will give mercy and grace to whom he chooses to. In this instance, Pharaoh is not given that. Why? I don't know. All I can say is that is what has happened. So as we look at this hardening, I think it's incredible. We have to deal with with that. If we look in Psalm 81.12, Kind of a fascinating verse here. Now this is a nation of Israel and the psalmist here is appealing that it, you know that Israel would repent. And of course, many times they didn't repent. And it says in verse 11, But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. And here's verse 12, So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. And that is sad. Whenever he gives one over, like in Romans chapter 1, he, he gives the people over to their lust. That's part of the wrath of God, isn't it? When he just lets them go ahead and do what they want. He just takes off his restraining hand and lets things happen. And I've said it so often. Uh, I believe there is evidence that that could be what has happened to our nation in some senses. The evil that is spreading. God could stop it. He is powerful enough. If He can't, then we don't have a great God. Why is there such thing as evil and pain and suffering? God could stop that, but that's not in His plan. At the moment, it, it continues. It's terrible. It's, it's a show of how evil the consequences of sin are. And there are times when He does intercede. We know that. And, and He definitely intercedes for His own people. But there are other things that He doesn't. Does He have control over that? Yeah, absolutely. Could He stop it at any time? Yes, He could. But sometimes He takes His hand off, lets it happen. That's the only way we can define it other than we can say, well, Satan did it. And then we're saying, oh, well, maybe Satan did, like in the book of Job, but he can only get permission from God. If Satan is up there almost as equal with God, we're in trouble. That means God isn't sovereign. That means God can't do anything that He wants to. So the sovereignty of God is so key to this book of Exodus as we go through it. It's a very uh, nature of God in His absolute sovereignty and controlling things what He wants, His purpose. He has direct involvements in mankind. So even when he releases that off, it was because this is his purpose. All of his affairs are involved. They all work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But to the ones who are not called, it will not work out for the good for them. It's judgment of God. There will be a heaven. There will be a wrath. There will be dealt out to them. And they are held responsible. And that's why we cry out mercy and grace because we are all in that same position. 
And unless it's His hand that comes down and regenerates us, we would go along with the same way that they're going, in bondage, in death, in that sin. God hardens, Pharaoh hardens. We're going to see this throughout Romans uh, or Exodus, Romans 9, uses this whole illustration as I was saying about mercy. This is the omniscient mind of God, the omnipotent God that we have who brings about His plan as He so desires. He had already said this in the covenant that He made with Abraham back in Genesis 15 where He said, and after 400 years, I'll take them out of their bondage of Egypt. That means it was His will that they would go in Egypt. Joseph, the reason he was put into prison and then become the leader of Egypt or the right-hand man to the Pharaoh, was that was part of God's plan. That's what Joseph said right at the end of Genesis, wasn't it? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That means it goes far beyond all those things that look bad that are happening. God is working this out. And He works it for good. What a God. Now verse 21 is a key to understanding I believe this whole tension of the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's what God has planned. He will so harden Pharaoh's heart that there's no way that he could change his mind and let them go. It's going to be all the way through. And that's what God is telling Moses here. And there is a balance in the hardening. There is responsibility on the part of Pharaoh. Man is always responsible for his actions. But this verse 21 is setting the trend on what is going to happen the way that it does. So it, it reminds you of how it was predetermined by God to send His Son to this awful sinful earth and suffer at the hands of certain men. And those men would then be held responsible for their actions even though it's the plan of God. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about that. In fact, I'll read that we... Mentioned it so much in our Monday night Bible studies, but it would be good to go that just for a moment. Peter's preaching a great sermon in Acts 2.22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, but which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. He preaches this great sermon. He just quoted a lot of Old Testament texts. And he says, Now, this Jesus, the one who you killed, look at this, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That wasn't mean God changed His plan. God had it from all eternity that He would send His Son here. That will press your mind, won't it? You can say, well, that means He knew about sin. Yeah, He did. Did that surprise Him? No. He's never surprised. Otherwise, He's not all-knowing. But it was His purpose and His foreknowledge, which doesn't mean to look into the future and see that it's going to happen. It means to know. The word is like our English word prognosis. Prognosco. Prognosto. means to predetermine. To set the boundary. Wow. 
That's what the Hebrew means. He says, by God's purpose, here's what you did though. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up. You did it. Man's responsibility. That is the sinful nature of man that all are born into. And we all would carry that out. By the way, we all did. We all killed him. Our sin killed him. He died for us so that he could take us out of that bondage. Incredible plan that God has. And you know what that takes me to? It takes me to the book of Romans, chapter 11. And for all of you who do the Monday night Bible study, we're right in the heart of that. Right at the end of chapter 11. That great section dealing with the glory of God. And Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. All in His purpose. How unsearchable are His judgments. We can't search it out. We can only go so far. It's a, you can go only so far down into the depths or up into the heights. And His ways past finding out. We can't know everything. These are incredible things that we're just dealing with here in the sovereignty. For who has known the mind of the Lord who has become His counselor, who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And He taught Job this lesson too. And by the end of it, Job said, I cover my mouth. <laughs> I repent in dust and ashes. Uh, you are a great God. And I am nothing. Because His ways are much further than ours. Can He plan this out? Yeah. And yet man still do what they do. This is what this book is about. That's where we're at. It's incredible. How about the story of Judas? You know Judas? Unfortunate, he carried out the very plan that was already brought forth. Jesus even mentioned that it was going to be him when the son of perdition. He was in his sin and he carried out what he would do through his own person. Incredible. He was appointed to be the son of perdition, falls in that same category. That's why we look to Romans 11, 33 and 34 and we say, I can't ever rule out sovereignty of God because He's in total control of everything, even sin, all the terrible disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes and all that. He is in charge of that. You look through the Psalms and you'll find out. And yes, He does take people's lives. He has it very mapped out exactly to the moment when they're going to be born and when they're going to die, and we don't have control of that. I'm thankful I know the Creator does. So this should give us peace. It should not scare us, because we look at this, this whole story of the Exodus, we see God's plan come together, and it does, all the way through. Another thing that God does to Moses, that He assures him of His special love for Israel. Um, we just finished verse 21. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. He says, Moses, I want you to tell this to Pharaoh. Yeah. If you don't do what my God says, my God is going to take your firstborn and He's going to kill him. Can you imagine going to the king and saying that? And you don't even belong to the country anymore? Okay. 
This is incredible what God is asking him to do and what God has done so far and how he has revealed himself to him. This is unbelievable. These signs, this is, this is really uncomfortable, God. The burning bush, the voice. Now you're telling me to go to Egypt. Can, can you guys imagine being Moses and, and seeing all this happen? And you're going to be the one doing this? Well... Maybe we don't see all these things, but I'll tell you what, God is doing work in us. And it doesn't make sense sometimes. And we're seeing a sovereign God here that should not make us comfortable. You know, He, like C.S. Lewis said, Chronicles of Narnia, He's not safe. He's not a safe lion. He's not a safe God, but He is good. He does things that blows our mind sometimes, doesn't He? He can do those things. Well, that's, that's not the kind of God I thought He was. Well, you, you know, we don't want Him small. We want Him to ever be increasing in our thoughts. My, this is incredible. You know, Kofi, Kofi comes to Bible study whenever we were in Romans, and we still are there, and he said, I'd never seen God in this way. This is bigger than I ever even imagined. And I go, yeah, that fits exactly what we're talking about here. I mean, well put. I mean, it just, it just blew his mind. He just sat there and he was numbed by that. So, Kofi, if you're listening, oh, I, I use that. I use him Monday night, too. That, that's okay. Just an illustration that some of you know comes up Monday night Bible study. Anyway, God's saying, firstborn son of, of the Egyptians, the firstborn son, he's, he's going to die. The real firstborn son of the Egyptians was very special of the Egyptians. Because Pharaoh was considered to be the only son of the gods. He was considered to be a son of God. And here is Moses coming in and saying, I'm going to kill your son, your firstborn who, if he'd be next in line to be the Pharaoh, he would be a son of God's, wouldn't he? Think about that, what God is doing here and having Moses tell him. Um, now, God here is declaring that a whole nation is a son in the Israelites. They are the firstborn. He is the one, God is the one who has chosen this nation to be a son of Him. He's a father of them. They are chosen to pull out what He wants to do in His plan. God's firstborn son, in that sense, is what He's using here. Israel is my son, my firstborn. He was a father to them in bringing them into existence, then to nurture them, and then to direct and lead them. What a father of this this nation. God saw them as a special people, in his plan that he pulled out of all the nations. They were a treasured possession. Now if we go to Jeremiah, a prophecy book, Jeremiah 31, 9. God says through Jeremiah, They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my, what? Firstborn. First 
born. Talking about Israel, Ephraim representing that. So there's the firstborn son. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So there, he's a father, and they are the firstborn son. He treats them that way. It's a special role that they, they will play. Now we go back to our Exodus passage, 4.23. And what it's doing is communicating quite the uh, gutsy message here because Moses is going to walk out of the desert into this land, get an audience with the king. He's going to look him in the eye, eye to eye, and say, Pharaoh, God says to let his people go. But because you refuse to do that, your own son will die. Now that's what God is telling Moses to tell him. Now with all these assurances, God has given all sorts of promises here, right? Moses has to have a lot of confidence. When we look at God's promises for us, do you have confidence in your daily life? Look at everything that has been given to you. Think on those things. If you do the will of God, if you know you do what you know is right, you have all confidence to live this life out to give glory to God. This has to translate to our lives, doesn't it? This Bible story that we're given, that's incredible. It goes right to us too. We just need to simply trust in what He says. God has said some incredible things here. He said, Moses, just trust me. So it's about faith, right? Faith. Trusting God here. Okay, now we move to the second section, and that's nature or uh, neglect and, and obedience, starting in verse 24. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment. Now, this is our second section, and all of a sudden it takes some kind of a detour. That the Lord met him and sought to kill him. <laughs> then Zipporah took a sharp stone, cut off the foreskin of her son, cast it at Moses' feet, and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me, so let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. What in the world is going on? This is a strange ordeal. Right in the middle of this, we get this section. Three verses. It's like saying, God, why are you making this hard for us? You know, we're we're trying to get along with this whole idea of your sovereignty, and now you plant this right in the middle. And, you know, here I am, I have to teach this and preach it, and how do I interpret this, and how do I put this to where it will make some sense? I'm sure you guys have read this for years, and you go, what? I sure have. I will tell you, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really know fully what it means, but I'm going to try. Okay, It's a very difficult passage to interpret. There's been much discussion on it throughout the church age. For 2,000 years or, or plus. You, know, you can go back to the Old Testament days too. After all the debates that there are, there are few definitive conclusions that can be drawn. That's what I got from a commentator. And I'm going, oh, please. But then he went on. I go, oh, yeah. And then I looked at some other books. And I'm going, I think I can go with something safe here. Do you guys want to go with this? Or we could just skip it. No, we can't skip it. We know better. Okay. If this is Moses. There's some questions here we have to ask. If this is Moses here. 
where, where the Lord meets him and, and seeks to kill him. If this is Moses and God wants to kill him, why would the Lord want to kill him after commanding him to go? Now, I'm not saying yes or no to that yet, okay? But that, isn't that the question? Isn't that the real question? That, okay, God has just told him to do this, and then he comes back and, and it's like he wants to kill him. God's ways are not our way. Why does Zipporah know so much about this? And how does she know what to do about it? And why does she circumcise her son instead of Moses circumcising his son? And what is a husband of blood? If you guys ask those questions, those I think are pretty fair questions to ask. Okay. We're going to attempt this, this tough passage. We're going to try to get some meaning out of it. It's put there for a purpose. That's the reason. God put it there not to confuse people, but it's put there for a purpose. And I think by the time we're done with this, which I hope will not take the rest of our time, it'll help us somewhat. First of all, Moses, I do believe, is the object of God's anger here. Keeping it in context, God is angry because Moses has not circumcised this son. Now, the other one he has, his first one, this other one, no. Zipporah appeases God's wrath and keeps God from killing Moses. Now, we can get that out of there so far, right? Doesn't answer it very good yet. Okay. Now, with the context of verses 18 through 23. 18 through 23 tells us what God is going to do to Egypt. Here's what God is going to do. Here's what's going to happen to Egypt. And the the firstborn son is going to be uh, taken, right? And uh, all those men that were going to challenge Moses, uh, they're all dead and everything. So it's it's telling you know that that God is going to defeat them. God has had his hand on them. Verses 24 to 26 instead of dealing with Egypt here, shifts it back to God and Israel. This is really, really a key passage. In chapter 12 of Exodus, which is the Passover chapter, we learn the importance also of circumcision. Now, it's not that it hasn't been stated before because it goes all the way back to Abraham. But it wasn't put in the law yet because the law is not to be written till later when they're out in the wilderness. But that was an issue that was passed on from the fathers. Moses knew about it. It's stressed very much in just before the Exodus. And that's what happens in chapter 12. They haven't exited yet, but it's the night before. And that's how important a circumcision is, as he mentions it before they leave. So in this section, verses 24 through 26, God is going to protect this most sacred ritual. And this is important because circumcision was a sign of God's covenant that first started all the way back to Abraham. Go back to your covenant chapters. You can start in chapter 12, but especially verse uh, chapter 15. That was carried through the patriarchs. Patriarchs are the fathers, which is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? And they passed that on down. Here's what you're supposed to do. So that God would be known and... It was for the sake of the fathers that uh, 
as it would be known that uh, he was their special one and they're, they're agreeing with him. Um, it's also a sign that he's going to deliver Israel. When you really look at that, his whole covenant. Now this covenant obligation remained for Moses. It was there. It was already in place. And the children of Israel. So we have this sign of the circumcision. And really I said uh, chapter 15 of Genesis, but let's go to Genesis 17 and get the specific circumcision ritual that's mapped out by God here. 17 verses 10 through 14. It's very important. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. So, me and you, Abraham, and all your seed after you, all your descendants, okay? Every male child, every one of them, among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's how important it was. It was a sign. This is a physical mark for their obedience to God. Very uh, physical. So staying in context, 18 through 23, there are the consequences of Egypt for not obeying the Lord. 24 through 26 illustrates the consequences of Israel for not obeying the command to circumcise before all the nation of Israel, but in this instance, for Moses. Moses, you're going to have to have consequences coming in your way here. Um, if you were to look at how holy God is, not necessarily dealing with circumcision here, but in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29, Eli is the priest. Eli has sons. Eli is in trouble. 1 Samuel 2.29 Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel my people? says, why are you favoring your sons over what my commands are? Um, he was honoring his family more than he was God. In circumcision, a man says, my heart, my family, my home are dedicated to you, God. Circumcision was like saying, everything, it's all to you. We're, this is part of the covenant here. And this is the sign of the covenant. And I'm, everything is, is to you, Lord. So it may be that to, to Zipporah, this act seems so crude. And she was so appalled at this ritual ceremony that she did not want Moses to do it to the second son. And so... Evidently, Moses didn't do it. Well, we know he didn't do it. Moses might have let her have her way, which I think that's what's happening here. 
And this displeased the Lord. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5, Moses, we see, is held responsible for his family. And there are certain rules that God give us. And of course, in 1 Timothy 3, it's dealing with overseers or bishops or pastors. Here are qualifications. But this would be good for anybody. But uh, says in verse 3, Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. I mean, nobody should have any of that anyway. But uh, elders are to rise above. Uh, but one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. And any husband father should be that way. Great for Father's Day here, isn't it? He has to have his house in order. Any father is commanded that. In Ephesians 5, for instance. But make sure, if you have an elder that you're choosing, if he doesn't have his house in order, he cannot be an elder. So he says, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And so there's just a rule there. Moses didn't have rule there in his household and what God had told him to do. The servant of God must know how to manage his family well. And so I think what we're seeing here is that because Moses didn't do what God says, and he does have a ministry in a huge way coming up, God has, gets, God has got to get something straightened out before he goes any further. Is it coming together here? Is this helping? Now, God has displeasure against Moses. He always knows about our sins, doesn't He? There are some that suffer more consequences than others. He knows about our sin. That should wake us up right there. This is a holy God. I don't want to mess with this great holy God. Sin must be judged. So God sought to kill Moses because He took this ritual very seriously. You say, what does He mean He sought? Well, was God patient with Moses throughout all the times that Moses was refusing? Right? And right at the fifth one, then God got angry. Circumcision is another matter. And even though you know Moses had put it off and then didn't do it, failure to do this act of circumcision would mean a swift punishment. And I mentioned... Uh, did I mention Nadab and Abihu a while ago? There were Eli's sons and such. Then there's Nadab and Abihu, and of course they offered up strange sacrifice, incense, and they just messed everything up. God told them specifically what to do. Uh, they might have gotten uh, drunk and had a little party and did their own little thing, you know, just switching it up a little bit. It won't matter, you know. We're just doing what we're supposed to be doing, and here we'll do this, add this in there. Huh. You don't do that with God. You worship God. You're committed to God and the covenant. You stay true to that. You don't mess with that. God put a huge judgment on Nadab and Abihu. You know what He did? He killed them. God can't do that. Oh, yes, He can. He does do it. He has done it. He's doing it still yet today. He's taking people out that are not honoring Him. Uh, in, in Corinthians 11 about the um, Lord's Supper. They were taking that wrong in a wrong way. And some of them were sick. Some were even sick to the point of death. God took some of them out. 
Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They lied to the Holy Spirit and God took both of them out. This is the holiness of God. This should make us shake in our boots when we think, or your sandals, shoes, about the seriousness and the awe that we should have of God. If He says something that's very clear and we know for sure that's what it is, don't mess with anything else. God can do things and He does do things. This was a rather quick judgment. Say, well, Moses didn't die out of this. He could have. But it's in God's plan also that Moses is going to do what he's going to do. But God has to do some kind of something here. He simply didn't kill Moses for his failure to obey here. The phrase here in our Exodus where it says um, the Lord met him and sought to kill him could mean was about to kill him. Many of the commentators even say that God made him sick, made him so sick that he was like deathly sick, about ready to die. God brought him to that point of almost death. And Zipporah comes in on the scene and saves the day. Um, of course, you know God's sovereignty is in all of this, but God is, I think, giving a warning. And I think He's giving an opportunity to correct the situation. I don't think Moses is going to be able to do it because I think he is so deathly sick or in, not able to do something about this. He's not able to do that. So Zipporah is going to have to take it in her own hands. And so this story captures what happens later to the nation of Israel as it would rebel against God and then God would have a just anger and then there would be a propitiation. That means God is satisfied. He's pleased with the offering that's done. Zipporah does it. She does the circumcision. It's a bloody thing. And it's despicable, but she knows that if she doesn't do something quickly, this God is going to take Moses' life. I mean, it happened like that. So she did it. Does that make sense in that section? Does that help a little bit, or are we more cloudier than ever? I think it sets us up for the rest of the ministry to happen now. Because something had to get cleared out. God uses a spouse sometimes, too, to get the truth to us. So the men need to take heed to this and say, you know what? God uses a wife sometimes to tell us things that we don't know or maybe things we've been avoiding. And toss it on the other side. Sometimes the men have things that the women aren't seeing and they need to see. So it works in both areas. That can be for our benefit. Right? It would be a good thing when somebody's watching out for you. So she corrected the situation, just like the midwives earlier, just like Jochebed, just like Miriam, just like Pharaoh's daughters all played a hand in Moses, the little baby, being saved. Same thing's happening here. It was a woman who took a courageous action in this redemption plan of God. Even though her attitude might not have been the best, she knew what she was to do, what had to be done. Before, I think she thought that this was a foolish thing to do and it was bloody. People get offended by a bloody cross, don't they? People hate the blood. They take the blood out of the songs today, out of the hymns, and now the, you know, whatever, and because they don't like the blood. The blood is uh, something ugly. That is the heart of the cross. 
That's the heart of the issue, isn't it? He had to die a violent death for us. Now, she had resisted before, I think. But now she knew what she had to do. She claims the promise of the covenant. She called Moses a bloody husband because he obliged her to circumcise the child. So Moses might still have his hand in doing it, but he can't do anything. He's helpless. Maybe that's what's going on. God releases him, and God's wrath is withdrawn from uh, what's going to happen to Moses here. Moses deserved the punishment, didn't he? He deserved it. But he didn't get it. Wow. All of this speaks to the danger of attempting to serve a holy God. I want you to listen carefully in a half-hearted way. If we worship Him on Sunday morning for a couple of hours and we don't live our lives according to what we just worship God with, He takes it very seriously. God wants a close relationship with us. It's not torture. It's the most beautiful thing in the world to relate to this holy God. He doesn't want us to rebel against Him because it's going to be disfavored for us. He's not taking anything good away from us. He has something good for us. To serve Him truly, there are certain unholy elements that He has to get out of our lives. Let Him do the inspection. Let Him go in there and start cleaning rooms out. We cannot be instruments of God when our lives are contaminated. I think that's what happened to Moses here. Can you identify with Moses from the very outset, refusing God, and now it here is a holy moment with God, and uh, he sees uh, his sin for sure. We must come to God on His terms, and His terms only, not ours. Don't make it up as you go through life. might be a comfortable life that we're involved with, but... Being a Christian isn't always comfortable. There are certain things that he wants to take the knife to and root it out. And it's a constant thing. You've got certain, certain hang-ups, certain things you know that's not right and it's not really honoring God. Are you a forgiving person of other people? Just those little things. Are there certain things you want in the world that you know you shouldn't have? And you know that this is not a thing that I'd want the church to see, but I can do it behind the backs and nobody will ever know. Are there certain things like that that you have? Then you need to let God just rip it out from you because He is a serious God. He has not changed since this time. So, uh, it's been stated, I think we should say it this way, I am weary of this half-hearted, hypocritical life. I want to be clean. I want to be open to You, God. Just take me. You mold me. I'm the clay. You're the potter. Do whatever You want with me. Just do it. I'm here. I'm tired of living two sides of the coin here. Lord, away with this trash, this rubbish, this rug that has it and the trash is stuck underneath it. Or it's underneath the couch. Hidden secrets. Hidden rooms. Things are where you let God go into certain rooms in your house, but there are certain rooms that you wouldn't ever want Him to walk into. I'm saying spiritual house, in your heart. Are you going to let Him come in there and clean that out? He knows exactly what's there. So you better let Him do it. He might take you out. 
He might take you in a way that you would never imagine. God is serious when He makes a call. Okay, now, enough of the rough stuff. Let's move on. <laughs> 27 and 28. That is a, that's a hard passage, but I think that is the basis of what is being stated in 24 through 26. I can't see that clock. Is that 1138? Okay, my watch broke. Okay, we're right near the end here. And the Lord said to Aaron, okay, now we go into another part. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went, met him on the mountain of God, and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went... Okay, we'll stop there. 27 and 28. Um, okay, Yahweh says to Aaron. Now here's the sovereign God. He's, he's been speaking to Moses. And for some reason, some strange reason, now Aaron is being told by God to go meet Moses. This is sovereign God working all this into play. It's just working out. It's not an accident that their meeting happens. And it's not an accident that it happens where? Meet Him on the mountain of God. What's happened at the mountain of God? This is Mount Horeb, or known as Sinai also. You'll, you'll know later the Ten Commandments will be given there in the near future. We know that Moses, you know, the burning bush, and uh, the orders from God here, the mountain of God. Oh boy, God is great. He keeps consistent, doesn't He? He had Aaron coming that way already. This is where God commissioned Moses. And Moses is now going to inaugurate Aaron into this ministry at Mount Horeb, which is where it's been happening for Moses. And I think this is confirming to Moses that this whole experience, this is incredible. All of this is from God. This is the very place that God first appeared to Moses. And I've got a, on the Scripture, Exodus 19, 10, and 11. That's the Ten Commandments. That's Mount Sinai. And Deuteronomy 4.10, it talks about this uh, Horeb, Mount Horeb, or Sinai, or Mountain of God. Moving on. These guys are soul brothers. They come and they meet each other, hug each other, kiss each other. They haven't seen each other for a long time. And there's the old guys. The old guys meet together, the old brothers... And they're just joyful. What a reunion this must have been. you got two of them coming together. And it was both, a, I guess really, the both of them coming together was a, a divine meeting, wasn't it? Aaron is like three years older than Moses, so he's an older brother. He's told by God, go meet him. As he listened to Moses now, he was thinking, Moses, I'm with you, bro. Let's go. Because Moses is telling him, you're going to be the one speaking. I'm going to get it from God. You tell it to them. Use your mouth. We're going to be a team. And you know what? God uses this. Moses should have been the one talking, but this is okay. He's going to bring Aaron in it. There's going to be some consequences out of it, but this is okay. This plan's going to work, right? And um, I think it's interesting to, to note that um, God doesn't send us out on our lonesome to do ministry. Oftentimes, we have the church behind us, or we have somebody else along with us. You know, you think of Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. Uh, oftentimes, um, there are teams that go together. Anyway, Moses tells every detail. 
And, he, and Aaron's going to serve right alongside Moses. And he's going to become the founder of the priesthood of Israel. The Aaronic, Aaron, Aaronic priesthood of Israel. Wow. What a position. Let's move to the very last section, number four here, and it now changes. Now going to Egypt now. We're entering into Egypt. You ready? 29. Then Moses and Aaron went, gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that He looked on their affliction. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped. They both go to meet the elders. God told them that's what they were to do. There they are. Um, The message is relayed to the elders. There's the speaking. And also here are the signs to the elders. They saw the snake. They saw the leprous hand. And also the water has turned to blood. God had already showed that to Moses. He said, hey, show this to them. So what convinced the people of Moses' call for these signs? And uh, they fully accept Moses with enthusiasm. 3.18 says, Then they will heed your voice. You shall come and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him. So it says, okay. They heeded him. Then the next thing they're going to do is go to the king. They fully accept what Moses is talking about. This is good news to Moses. I think this is probably one of the things that he feared the most. Yeah, I'm going to go back to my Israelite family. I was raised up by the Egyptians. Everybody thinks of me as an Egyptian. And I'm going to go to the Israelites. And I'm going to tell them to follow us because we're going to go to the king and we're going to demand that we get out of here. Would that make you fearful? That's what Moses is scared to death about. But there's no reason to fear. God's already told him. The people are going to believe you. The elders, the, the ones who were the leaders of Israel, that's the elders there. And look at the logical response. And can you imagine this response that happened at that time? I think it was one of the beauties in the Bible about worship to God. You've been in slavery all your time and all of a sudden a deliverer shows up. He shows you the signs. And you're going to get out of there. 31. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that He looked on their affliction, then they bowed their head and worshipped. Best thing anyone can possibly do. Worship God. Worship is a logical response of God's people. Why are we here today? There's only one reason. We're not here just to get built up or just to make ourselves feel good. Not even just to come here and get convicted. Not to just come here and sing or to pray. All of that is part of one act. It's about glorifying God together in a way that we can't by ourselves. That's why we meet together. We focus around this Word. And what's your response after that? Worship. His grace, His goodness. 
What they did was give glory to God. Oh, I wish they would hold on to that because what's going to happen next isn't going to be too pretty. You would think, oh, everything's all fine and boom, they're on out of there now, right? Well, we'll get into that next week in chapter 5. In the meantime, what's happening here? Moses had done what the Lord told him. He was obedient. The stage is now set for a war, a confrontation between Pharaoh and Moses. And this is the lull before the storm. God is about to declare war on Egypt and Pharaoh. But obedience here by Moses is going to reap blessing. Moses did his part. God is doing His. And I say, what a thrill. What a ride this is going to be. Have Thine own way, Lord. Have Thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. God's will. God's way. Do we say that? Can we all say that and mean it? God's will. God's way.